I'm probably going to be doing things a little bit different in this particular podcast than I've done in the past. Two things are going to happen. First of all, I'm, I'm actually going to be reading some, uh, some facts and statistics to you, which is a bit uncharacteristic for me, but I think it'll be kind of interesting, I hope. And secondly, as I'm doing this, I'm enjoying a really warm, soft French cognac. Because if you're going to be talking about Stevie Nicks, it really seems completely appropriate. My name is Brad Sunberg, and this is In the Studio, the podcast. We're going to be talking about Stevie Nicks a little bit today. Now, in all candor, cards face up on the table. I only got to work with her once. Well, it was over the course of a couple of weeks. Um, but we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. We'll, we'll kind of work our way there. There's nothing about this that's meant to be disparaging about Stevie. Uh, quite the contrary. She was, uh, she was amazing to work with. And it's been kind of interesting, thanks to... Thanks to uh, TikTok, uh, it seems like there's a lot of uh, young little uh, brains of mush that are learning about Stevie Nicks. And they're seeing some guy on a skateboard drinking uh, ocean spray, and they hear her voice, and uh, he's singing along with her. And uh, what what a strange world we live in that uh, takes a TikTok video and uh, a guy on a skateboard to reintroduce people to one of the most iconic singers of our generation. So I don't normally do this, but I'm going to actually read some statistics to you just because I, I really couldn't memorize all this. And uh, I've been kind of pulling some facts together. Hopefully we can trust the Google machine, but I want to kind of take you through an album called Rock A Little. Um, Rock A Little was, was Stevie's third solo album. Now, to be clear, the first time that I was introduced to Stevie Nicks' voice, you're almost not going to believe this, but I kind of remember when I first heard rumors. I, I was really young, living in, in uh, Santa Cruz, California, and we were at some people's house, and upstairs, I don't know, they kind of sent the kids all upstairs, and somebody had Fleetwood Mac rumors, and, you know, kind of a cheap, turntable, record player, whatever you want to call it. And I, I don't want to uh, over, uh, you know, over dramatize the story, but the other kids were kind of, I don't know, playing checkers or wrestling or whatever. And I was really mesmerized by this record. And I, I just sat listening to it. I remember that very clearly. I, I, rem I remember the look of that room that, uh, that it was a big house, and I remember being in there and uh, and hearing that record, you know, really for the first time. So it, it did make a, an impact on me. And if you grew up in the 70s, you were very familiar with Fleetwood Mac. I mean, they were they were just an iconic uh, super group uh, through, through much of my youth. So Fleetwood Mac recorded a, an album called Tusk, and I believe it was released in uh, like 1992, so, uh, 1982, forgive me. I bought it, 
but I really didn't, I really didn't love the album. I had a couple of good songs on it, but it just seemed like there, there was a whole lot of, a uh, whole lot of stuff that, that just wasn't really my, my cup of tea. I later found out that Tusk was one of the most expensive albums ever made. So you have to kind of put yourself in Stevie's shoes just a little bit. She's been very well taken care of through the years. And this is her, her third solo album. The first two did, I think the first one sold 4 million. The second one sold 2 million. And now it's time for rock a little. So I want to kind of go through, we're going to go through just a few numbers to start with, and then we're going to get a bit more personal in all of this. According to Mick Fleetwood, and, and Mick and I, you know, speak on a regular basis, that was a joke. Um, in Nick Fleetwood's book, he says that the production costs of Rock a Little were about a million dollars, which in 19, 1984 dollars was a, you know, expensive little project. So as you go through Rock a Little, well, let me just tell you a little background story. And again, this is, you know, I, I am gleaning some of my info from Google. I'm not going to lie to you, but it, it seems fairly credible. There was a songwriting duo by the name of Bernie Toppin and Marty Page. Martin Page, sorry. And uh, you've, you're probably familiar with Bernie Toppin's name from Elton John. They wrote a song for Stevie and presented it, and she turned it down. She turned it down, and uh, the Wilson sisters <laughs> snatched it up. And it was a song called These Dreams, which is just an amazing song. But it wasn't, Stevie just didn't think that it was it was the right fit for her. Tom Petty, and of course, you know, a few years earlier, Tom and, and, uh, and Stevie had their duet, Leather and Lace. So I know they were, you know, very huge amount of musical respect between the two of them. Tom Petty and David Stewart, I don't think it's the same Dave Stewart as the Arrhythmics, but David Stewart presented a song, and Stevie liked it, but thought that uh, that it was more suited for Tom's style. So she turned down a song called Don't Come Around Here No More. <laughs> it's one of my favorite Tom Petty songs. So it just kind of makes me chuckle a little bit that there was just this, you know, so many people wanted to write songs for Stevie. I mean, these are just a couple that are mentioned. And having been kind of on the other side of the glass, I know how many demos and how many songs are presented to big artists. And at this time, Stevie Nicks was a big artist. Stevie Nicks is still a big artist. But at this time, it would have been massive for her to record one of your songs. So the album Rock a Little, again, it, it's estimated that about a million dollars were spent on production. And uh, again, we're, we're going to talk about um, where some of that money goes in just a couple of minutes. It certainly was not a flop, and I'm, I'm no one to judge anything like that. But it did go platinum in the U.S. In the U.S., platinum means it sold over a million copies. It stayed in the top 200, top 200 albums in the U.S. on Billboard for, for 35 weeks, which is pretty respectable. And it peaked at number 12. Now, ironically, I think it did better in Australia. The Aussies really seemed to, uh, really seemed to eat this album up. But in the U.S., it, it really didn't, it didn't generate, you know, certainly not the power 
that, you know, like Belladonna did. So you dig a little bit deeper and um, Jimmy Iovine, Jimmy, now I've, I've never personally met Jimmy and he, he wouldn't know me from a lamppost and that's okay. Jimmy's a powerhouse in the music industry, uh, was then and is now. Jimmy is a force to reckon with. Well, apparently Jimmy and Stevie had had a romantic relationship before and during the, the project of Rock a Little. Who knew? Not me. So Jimmy is very involved in a lot of these songs. But again, according to uh, the Google machine, he basically quit the project midway through. Apparently they, they kind of called it quits as a couple. And he just didn't really agree with the direction that she wanted to take this project. So at some point, Jimmy bailed out. So now the producer uh, that seems to have worked on most of it was a gentleman by the name of Rick Knowles. Now, I did work with Rick. I worked with Rick on this project, and I think we worked on a couple other projects at Westlake. We are by no means yeah, on a first-name basis or anything. But Rick was he was a good guy. He was maybe feeling a bit of the pressure. Uh, sometimes the sessions that I was involved in uh, seemed a little, um, not manic, but, uh, but maybe not quite as focused as I was used to. Now, keep in mind, I'm kind of coming from, from Michael Jackson world. So, uh, you know, I've, and I'm new, I'm really new in the, in the studio world, but I've been around, you know, Michael on the Captain EO project and then uh, believe somewhere around there, Bruce uh, may have been working on the Running Scared project, but I, I could have my chronology wrong. So, but anyway, and here's the funny thing. I probably worked on this project maybe for three weeks. So don't, I don't come at this with any degree of expertise at all. It's more kind of a fly on the wall, um, kind of, you know, let me, let me just kind of share some insights with you. So before we get to all that, <laughs> I have more reading for you. I've actually been spending a little bit of time with this record uh, the past couple weeks, and uh, especially the liner notes. Now, here's the funny thing. I did work on this record, like I say, probably for two or three weeks, and I'm not even mentioned. Uh, I, I don't get a credit, so right off the bat, you can say, you know, Sunberg's, <laughs> Sunberg's blowing smoke. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He wasn't there. And that's okay. I don't have any uh, written proof to show that I was there other than I was there for a fraction of the sessions. Now, this is what I think is kind of interesting. And I, I, ho I hope you'll kind of follow my line, of, my line of thought here for a minute. In the mid-80s in Los Angeles, I had just moved to, to L.A. I, was, I attended a recording school. And I was very new in the studio world. But arguably, those were, you know, that was kind of the heyday. Uh, those were almost the best of times. There were so many studios. In fact, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, the, the number 400 used to be floated around as far as what would be considered professional recording studios in Southern California. You know, not not a little 8-track studio in some guy's garage, but an actual, you know, recording studio. So when you 
graduated from recording school or when you moved to LA to make your name in the world, <laughs> in a sense, you had 400 places to choose from. Now it's like anything else. You start, you know, it's kind of a pyramid where the, you know, the, the powerhouse studios, there's not nearly as many of those. They're the big boys up at the top of the pyramid, which is why I chose Westlake. I, I really wanted to work at a heavyweight studio. I, I wasn't that interested in uh, working in a garage studio. And, and for me, I think it was the right choice. And Brian Bibberts and I talked about that a few weeks ago. Uh, he kind of did the same thing in New York. But this was, this was the heyday. I mean, it's funny. I sometimes think about, you know, it must have been just amazing to work in recording studios in the 70s, back when, you know, well, back when Rumors was recorded and Dark Side of the Moon and, and even some of the, the later Beatles albums. That stuff fascinates me. The, the music that they were able to create on just eight tracks or 16 tracks. By the time I got into it, it was pretty much 24 track and even, you know, locking two 24 tracks up together to give you, you know, 48 tracks or really 46 tracks. But this was, this was analog. This was big studios, big consoles, racks and racks of equipment. And it was very, it was very showy. It was very, you know, the big boys had to you know, uh, iron sharpens iron. The big boys had to compete with the other big boys. If uh, Record Plant got a new uh, 72 input console, then uh, Conway might be getting an, an 80 input console. Or, I mean, I'm I'm kind of making those numbers up, but but it was very much um, who's got the latest gear, who's got the biggest microphone collection, who has you know, who's beginning to work in digital. And it was, you know, now, you know, and I hate comparing, you know, now and then, but now, you know, almost anybody can have, you know, a 200-track recording studio in their bedroom, but it's it's really not the same, uh, as much as I hate to say it. And you, you have the occasional Billie Eilish who claims to have recorded you know, her, her masterful album with her brother in their bedroom. And that, that may or may not have a certain, you know, have be fully truthful. Um, it certainly was not mixed in their bedroom. Um, I think a lot of the production or pre-production did take place there. But the point is, yeah, there are pretty amazing tools at your disposal for a very reasonable price compared to doing a record in 1984. So then you add on to that, um, well, let's just throw some numbers around. And I'm doing this literally off the top of my head just because I was around studios so much back then. But a, a, a heavyweight studio, a, a Westlake or a record plant, was, you know, depending on the artist and the deal that was made and all the... Yeah, all the backroom dealings, they're usually going to be charging $1,200, $1,500, $1,800 a day, something like that. Then they're going to be charging on top of that equipment rentals. And, and then you've got the engineer. I mean, a good, you know, a serious engineer that has, has earned his or her stripes in the industry is probably, uh, back then, going to be commanding 
anywhere from 60, 80, in some instances, um, $150 an hour. Um, mix engineers are probably going to be doing better than that. So it's, it's not play money. So then add on to that things like tape costs, catering, you know, they're, you know, every, everyone's got to have sushi. You have to have sushi, sushi, sushi. Everybody's, <laughs> we're, we're all just crazy about sushi in LA. Uh, you've got to have the latest Italian restaurant, uh, bringing their food in on and on and on. And somebody's paying for all this. It's not, you know, it's not all free. Now, when I worked on what I would say, you know, kind of mammoth projects, you know, a, a Michael Jackson album, you know, called Dangerous, for example, we would, we would use a lot of studios, but we kind of move into the studios. It'd be called a lockout. A lockout means that uh, the artist has rented that studio for a week, a month, two months, whatever. And no one can go in there. I mean, it does not get rented out on weekends. It doesn't get rented out early morning. It's their room. And they're paying a premium for it. It's good for the studio because they don't have to worry about squeezing in little sessions here and there. And it's good for the artist because they can leave their tapes, uh, um, instruments, whatever, nice and safe in the studio. And, it, and there really is kind of a... Uh, uh, gentleman's agreement that, you know, people aren't going in and making copies in the middle of the night. And, uh, and there's no Instagram or anything back then. So your tapes are pretty secure for the most part when you lock a studio out. So that's how a lot of the artists that I worked with, um, Michael Jackson, Quincy Jones, they would lock a room out, stay there and get the job done. Uh, beginning, middle and end. And, so that's kind of my comfort level is settling in. You make the room work for you the best you can. On rock a little, I, I spent a little bit of time and uh, I, I really read the liner notes. Now, let me be clear about something. Once again, for you young pups, you don't even know what liner notes are. Back when we used to go to record stores and buy records, or sometimes they're called vinyls or LPs or whatever word you want to use, it's in a big, it's in a big sleeve. It's in a big cardboard sleeve. And, and inside that sleeve, you know, there's, there's artwork and, uh, and then depending on the artist, sometimes there'll be a booklet or sometimes they'll use, uh, the inner sleeve and, and put all the liner notes on there. The liner notes tell you, um, what studio the, the song was recorded at, who the engineer was, who wrote the song, who arranged the song, who the guitar player was, and who the engine, you know, the engineers, even the second engineers are usually mentioned in the liner notes. And it's kind of a big deal, you know, when you work on a big project and they usually had somebody called the production coordinator and the production coordinator's job was to start building these liner notes. And ironically on, uh, especially on the Dangerous album and on Michael Jackson's History album, I did most of the liner notes, um, including... <laughs> including typing out all the lyrics. So I looked up on on Stevie's uh, album, and she actually had three production coordinators, and I, I, I honestly didn't remember any of them, and I feel kind of bad about that. But once again, the production coordinator left Brad Sundberg out. I'm a nobody. I'm, you know, I'm a second engineer on a, 
a handful of the sessions, so it's not that big a deal. But the point is that things get left out and mistakes are made in the liner notes. Having said that, when I went through <laughs> and read the liner notes, it, it's to me it's fascinating. Just the number of recording studios. Let me just read these to you. Uh, this is going to take just a few seconds. If you get bored, go ahead and skip ahead. Um, Sunset Sound, Music Grinder, those are both in L.A. Hit Factory, New York. Conway, Goodnight L.A., Westlake, Record Plant, United Western. United Western eventually became Ocean Way. Those are all in L.A. Village Recorder. I could do an entire podcast on Village Recorder. That place is so fascinating. A place called Art Department Sound. I don't know what that is. Image Recording was big. Unique Recording in New York City was big. Goodnight Dallas. I'm not that familiar with them. Record One, Studio 55. And then, brace yourself, Super Bear Studios in Nice, France. <laughs> so if I'm not mistaken, I didn't do a lot of homework on this, but Super Bear, I'm actually, I actually follow Super Bear Studios on Facebook. And I mean, they're, they're one of the European kings. I mean, that's where Elton John used to work. And uh, I'm pretty sure that's where uh, some of the Pink Floyd albums were done. And I think think they either had a big fire or, or something happened at Super Bear um, where they, they may not, I don't, truthfully, I don't think they're a functioning studio anymore, but they keep their Facebook page, page alive. So let's just count here. This will be fun. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. So by my count, this project floated around between 16 studios in at least three cities, New York, L.A., and Nice, France, because you have to go to Nice, France uh, to, do, to do background vocals or something. So you have to understand, when you're, when you're packing up and going from one studio to another, it's, it's a logistical, uh, I won't say nightmare, but challenge. The way it looks is that certain songs kind of resided in certain studios. And that, that kind of makes sense. Well, just for fun, let's go through the list of engineers. And just bear with me. It's only going to take a second. Uh, John Kavork, Mick Gazowski, Shelly Yakis, Chris Lord Algae, uh, Jimmy Iovine, Robert Feist, George Black, and Gabe Veltri. Forgive me if I mispronounced any of those names. I'm sure there were more. Mick Gazowski is one of the greatest engineers on the planet, um, as is Shelly Yakis, as is John Kavork, as is Chris Lord Algae. These are heavyweights. These are not, uh, you know, young pup engineers that are getting the, their first little shot on a big record. Um, they're all heavy hitters right down the line. Then, and I'm not going to read all the names because there's just so many, but you start going through the musicians on this album. Michael Landau, please. You have heard so many songs with Michael Landau playing guitar, you just didn't know it. Uh, he is just, he's a staple in, in L.A. Uh, recording studios. Waddy Watchell, another amazing guitar player. Mike Beccaro from Toto on bass, please. Uh, Steve Jordan on drums. And this is just this is only on a couple songs. She had different musicians on all the songs. So it was just this cornucopia of talent on this record. And then you've got Rick Knowles, who is, I, I believe his title on the album is, is executive producer. And again, I, 
I am not, there's no judgment in any of this, honestly. I'm, I'm just kind of fascinated by the whole thing because it's kind of an overlooked album. And maybe, maybe it deserves to be overlooked, maybe not. I don't know. That's, that's up to you. I'm not, I'm not here to tell you to, to buy it. But the amount of money that was poured into the production just for all those studios, all those engineers, their daily rate, then engineers are generally smart people and they've kind of cracked the nut. So they all have their own equipment racks. And so, so the way it used to be, maybe it still is to a certain extent, um, some of them, you know, you'd hire the engineer, but then he or she is going to say, you know, well, gee, if you want me to bring all my amazing, you know, effects and compressors and everything, that's another, man, you know, that's $750 a day or something, you know, for my, my racks. Then I got to get, you know, 800 bucks for cartage to get everything over here. So it, it's just spending, spending, spending. And then, you know, if Shelly Yakis is, you know, at music grinder for a week and then for whatever reason they get bumped out and they have to move over to village or whatever once again all the stuff has to be packed up and, and keep track of all the tapes it would be very much a logistical challenge to do an album like this and, and again i'm not trying to sound judgmental but the way that that you know bruce and quincy and michael were much more kind of keep keep the the posse small and uh and so that that's kind of the school that i came from when i see this many art or this many uh musicians and this many engineers and studios i hate to say it but you kind of hear it in the record and stevie there's no reason you're ever 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 going to hear this this is not meant to be <laughs> it's not meant to be a dig at all i promise but it it doesn't really sound like a a super cohesive album in my nothing opinion. So I started thinking about this record, and we we've kind of gone through all the facts and and uh, numbers as much as we can. Uh, I don't have any phone numbers for the accountants at the record company that really want to go into the real details, but I can just tell by reading it that uh, it was an expensive project. So. I got to take one more sip of cognac here to uh, sort, of, sort of a toast to Stevie. Let me tell you what my, um, what my recollection is of the, <laughs> the first time I met Stevie and uh, what was unique about these sessions. So this would have been, I'm, I'm, my best guess is going to be uh, either late 1984 or early 1985, because it was released in late 85. So back then, the studio manager at Westlake, I think it was Debbie Jenkins, I think, and she, uh, whoever it was, tapped me on the shoulder and said, we've got a project for you. And uh, now there is a Westlake assistant engineer that's listed by the name of Bruce Weinstein. And I haven't talked to Bruce in years and it's possible that um, Bruce may have done a couple of the sessions and then got called off for some reason. Maybe I kind of got tossed on in the last minute. I, I don't, I honestly don't remember. But whatever it was, it was kind of a big deal. And when you're 
a staff engineer at a studio like Westlake, there's a bit of a pecking order. You know, it's kind of a, eh, a little bit of a, not show off, but, you know, you're kind of proud of the project that you've been assigned to. So, you know, there's a little bit of kind of talk around the water cooler. I don't think we had a water cooler, but, um, you know, about who's working on what project. And uh, so the Stevie Nicks one comes along and, and I got the nod to work on that. I got called into the studio manager's office and, and she said, there's a couple things that are a little bit different about this project that you need to know about up, up front. And I said, okay. And she said, well, Stevie only works at night. I said, okay. You know, I, I said, <laughs> six o'clock? No, midnight. And I'm like, midnight? And she said, yeah, she, she wants to start at midnight every night. So you're going to have to kind of reverse your sleep schedule. And I was like, okay, um, that's a new one. And she said, also, Stevie's going to be doing vocals. And, and there was really no need to go through the whole, you know, gee, Brad, you know, don't act like an idiot, you know, don't be a super fan or anything. I mean, we already knew that. I, I knew how to work with artists. That's not, uh, that's really not a big deal. So by the time you're a staff engineer in a, in a big studio, there's there's no need for those kind of conversations. You kind of skip past all that. But she said, um, you know, the other thing is that she wants the the studio to be as cold as we can possibly make it. So I'm like, okay. So I've got to show up for work at uh, 10 o'clock at night and plan on working all night. And uh, I guess I have to wear a jacket. Any other surprises? And she said, no, no, no. That, that, that should be it. So... The day came when uh, Stevie was going to show up, and I, I kind of remember it was like in the, the late afternoon, early evening, we're getting everything set up. And, and again, in no way am I trying to uh, make fun of anybody or disparage anybody, but I, I just remember feeling a little bit frantic. So it was this flurry of activity of, you know, the, the studio provided a big fruit basket. We got to get the fruit all set up. I think we turned the air conditioner on like at four in the afternoon and we had it as cold as it would go. I mean, it was out in the studio. It, it, it was just freezing. I mean, not like, you know, walk-in refrigerator freezing, but it was very, very cold. And I'm like, is this, this is really how she wants it? Yep. Yep. This is how she wants it. And, I wish I was making this up. I'm not. It just kind of seems like it was almost like Hollywood. I mean, it was in Hollywood, but it was almost like a Hollywood uh, set where, where at 12 midnight, <laughs> the door flings open and in comes Stevie Nicks. And I'm like, this is, this is just so cool. You know, it's midnight and I'm here and Stevie Nicks is here and she had her little entourage. And you just never know what to expect. I mean... Artists are always shorter than you expect. I mean that—that's just a given. You could—I'm almost—I'm about six three, so most artists I work with are shorter than me. And and it's Stevie Nicks. I mean, I've seen all the videos, I've seen the album covers, I've seen the interviews. I never did see Fleetwood Mac in concert, but that's okay. And it's like it's just cool, you know. She she's kind of a kind of a rock legend, and here she comes, you know, swishing in, and she's got this long flowing black outfit on and and it's just like this is 
this is why I'm in the music industry, is for moments like this, when Stevie Nicks kind of comes swooshing through the back door. And so she, she, she traveled with a couple, a couple women and I personal assistants, friends, none of my business. I don't really care. You know, the three of them kind of hung out quite a bit. But Stevie was actually, you could tell, the studio was her home. She was very comfortable in it. She, you know, whether or not she'd been in Westlake before, I don't know. But uh, but I think to someone like that, one studio after another after another, they just kind of all blur together. So Studio C, that's where we were. It was Studio C at Westlake. And I believe it was a big API board. And I like API boards, but they can be a little bit... Uh, little cumbersome and they're, they're not quite as as elegant as like an ssl they're a little bit clunkier but we had this big api and just a giant patch bay just enormous a patch bay if you don't know what i'm talking about it's those uh it's kind of that wall that's got just hundreds of holes in it it kind of looks like like a you know lily tomlin uh you know phone operator thing where you're patching cables, you know, to connect the compressor to the mic preamp and different things. And and I hadn't worked in Studio C that much, so I didn't know the patch bay quite as well as I as I maybe wanted to, but nonetheless, we got through it. So, Stevie comes in and she's she's actually she's actually very sweet and almost immediately, and it's not like we became best friends or anything, but but she just kind of had this this kind of uh I don't know, homey way about her that was, she was funny and, you know, very, just kind of comfortable to be around. It's kind of like, wow, she's actually pretty cool. I don't know if it was the first night or the second night, but she was, she was really there to sing. And again, it's the eighties. There's a lot of excess and there was, there was no shortage of it on that, on that project. So it's freezing cold. Now, now to be clear, it was the studio. When I say studio, I'm talking about the, the, the tracking room or the vocal room, the, the big room where the, the artist goes to sing or play guitar. The control room is where the console is. And that's kind of where everyone hangs out. So the control room was comfortable. Um, it was, I think we may have had it cool, but not freezing. It was the studio that was freezing. So it comes time for her to do her vocal. And you have all the lights down really low. It's like, you know, man, I get to hear Stevie Nicks sing. I mean, come on, people pay for this. And I'm actually getting paid. So now again, I'm, I'm, I'm only going to repeat this, you know, one or two more times. It's the 80s. There's a lot of excess and a lot of, a lot of chemicals. So she's smoking a joint. And, um, and it's just not my thing. I, I don't, I'm not my thing at all. But, but, you know, she's very, you know, comfortable with, uh, you know, with a joint and, and there, there may or may not have been, you know, some white powder flying around, but, uh, but it was the eighties. So you, you just go with it. So she said before the session, the, the production coordinator had told us that we need to have at least one or two bottles of cognac and her favorite cognac is Cavassier. Brad Sundberg in 1984, not only had he never tasted cognac, I could, probably couldn't even pronounce it. And um, I had no idea what this this dark brown <laughs> elixir was that uh, that Stevie Nicks enjoyed so much. So she go, so she had her cognac, 
and it wasn't like she was getting plastered, but but she's smoking a joint. She's got her cognac. There may or may not have been some white powder involved. And she goes out behind the microphone. So I go out there with her. And if I'm not mistaken, I'm sure Rick Knowles uh, came out also, just to kind of, you know, prompt her and kind of help with some of the vocal lines and things. So I set the microphone up, and and you have to, it's very conversational. I mean, part of working in a recording studio is knowing when to speak and when not to speak and to be alert, but not like in somebody's face. And, you know, maybe I'm good at that. I don't know. So I get her set up and she, you know, the mic is, she, she knows how to work a microphone. She's a pro. Um, and I, I, we were, we may have been using a, a Neumann uh, U47. I'm, I honestly don't remember. It might have been a U47, might have been a, a Tele 251. But we get her set up. And, and I think John Kvorak was, was the engineer uh, the, that was with us. And it is freezing in that room. And she's in a, a mink coat. And it was just a beautiful mink coat. And I'm not a mink guy. I could care less, but I'm not a mink guy. But, but it's, it's Stevie Nicks, and she's beautiful, and she's a rock star. And she's in this long mink coat. <laughs> and, and she's smoking a joint, and she's got a glass of cognac in her hand. And she's ready to sing. And it's freezing cold. And I'm like, this is, this is surreal. This, this is this is why I moved to Hollywood. So I go into the control room, and I kind of find my spot in the corner and stay out of everybody's way, but make sure that if John needs anything, I'm right there. And she starts to sing. And I think she's saying, has anyone ever written anything for you? And the story goes that she wrote that for Jill Walsh. Apparently somewhere in the recent past, the two of them had had some sort of relationship. And she sang that song, and I heard that voice, and that velvety, uh, almost gravelly voice. And it was mesmerizing. It was, it was amazing. It's, it's not the greatest song ever written, may or may not be the best performance she's ever done, but none of that mattered. In that cold room, with her in that long coat and a glass of, uh, of Cavassier, and when she opened her mouth, it was, it, it really was magic. I mean, it was just, it was one of those times when, and I, I, once in a while I'll say this to my friends, and I don't say it, in a cocky way. But when you work in recording studios, you experience things periodically that deep inside you, you know the rest of the world um, either wouldn't understand this or they just don't, they're not, they don't get to experience this. And that's one of the cool things about, about recording studios. So she's saying, and I don't want to make it, I'm not going to over-dramatize it. I didn't sit there with tears running down my cheeks or anything. But but it was magic. I mean, it's like goosebumps. It's like Stevie Nicks is, is singing, and, and I'm here, 
and uh, <laughs> along with a room full of people. It's kind of funny because like when Michael Jackson sings, you know, it's everybody out. But with Stevie, she didn't really seem to care. Um, there were just a lot of people there. Not a lot, but if I had to guess, I would say there were six or eight people. I don't, you know, kind of her personal friends and uh, and then kind of the production team. So I don't I don't think she drove herself. In fact, it's kind of funny in the in the liner notes she gives credit to a to a limo company. <laughs> like only Stevie Nicks would take a limo to a recording studio. That's just that's just cool. So after a few days, she's singing and, and we're, we're actually not, we're actually making some progress. And she said, she said, I'm hungry. So, and she was very funny. She had a good sense of humor and she would tell us Fleetwood Mac stories. You know, if Stevie Nicks is going to tell you Fleetwood Mac stories, you're going to shut up and listen. Uh, that's, that's just kind of a privilege for a few minutes. So she said that she was hungry. So I think I went, in studios, we used to have something called the menu book. <laughs> it was this, this giant three-ring binder, and you'd get menus from all the restaurants in the area, and you'd put them in the binder. And and it, this is like before Facebook and social media. You would actually see people just spending half an hour thumbing through the menu book and just thinking and looking at every menu available. So I go to get the menu book. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, it's three in the morning. You know, even in L.A., there's not that many places that are open. You're going to have like Cantor's, you know, maybe a couple of the delis and on Fairfax. But most of the traditional restaurants have been closed for four hours. So I got the menu book and she said, no, 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 that's not what I want. I want I want to make sandwiches. I want to make sandwiches for everybody. And I'm like, what? I said, yeah, send somebody to the store. Get some bread, some mayo, some some mustard, some lunch meat, some cheese, some lettuce, and I'm making sandwiches. So I'm like, Stevie Nicks wants to make me a sandwich? I'm going to let Stevie Nicks make me a sandwich. We send a runner out to to the grocery store, and uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure he or she was completely confused by the whole thing, but comes back with a big bag of groceries. I don't, I'm trying to think of a grocery store that even would have been open at three in the morning, but they found it somehow. Came back with, uh, I'm not talking, you know, like, uh, you know, high-end uh, artisan bakery bread. I mean, it's like Wonder Bread, you know, and French's mustard and uh, comes back with just these basic essentials for making sandwiches. And there's Stevie. I got her all set up in the lounge and we had, you know, those kind of coffee tables, um, you know, tables that, you know, you kind of put in front of a couch or whatever. So she's on her, you know, sitting on the floor, kind of sitting sideways at this, at this coffee table and she's smearing mayonnaise on, on bread and throwing bologna on it. And she said, this is what I used to do in Fleetwood Mac. I would love to make sandwiches for, for the, the crew and, and, you know, and for the band. So I'm like eating the Stevie Nick sandwich, you know, at, I don't know, five in the morning, you know, with, well, it wasn't so cold in the control room, but out in the studio it was freezing. You know, and drinking Cavassier. I mean, by this point, we're all drinking Cavassier. I mean, that's just how it is. You know, if you're going to work with Stevie Nicks, you're, you're going to have some Cavassier. Um, I'm not going to partake in the other stuff, but I, 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 will, I will imbibe in a Cavassier. 
And to this day, I mean, my family probably gets tired of me saying this, but every now and then, including tonight, um, I treat myself to a, to a nice cognac. And it's kind of my little, um, number one, I do enjoy it. And number two, it's, it's a little bit of a, a tribute to being able to work with, with Stevie Nicks, uh, somebody that I, I genuinely respect and look up to. And she's, she's kind of part of my childhood, and I got to actually meet her and spend a little bit of time with her uh, as part of the Westlake team. So that's the, that's the story of Rock a Little. I'm not going to take you track by track. You can go explore it on your own. Dig into it on Spotify. Or better yet, uh, go support a local record store somewhere and actually buy it and read the liner notes. It's a, it's a whole different experience. But I'm grateful. I'm happy to have been, you know, a, a small cog in in the machine that, uh, at least in part of Stevie Nicks' incredible discography. So, thanks for hanging with me. Go grab the album, give it a listen. Let me know what you think. It's even better if you enjoy it with a with a nice cavassier in your hand. And remember, before you drink the cavassier, uh, take a nice long breath of it. Just breathe it in, then start the music then take a sip, and you're going to enjoy both a lot more. My name is Brad Sundberg. Thanks for hanging out with me in the studio. Have a great week and stay safe.